0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: began a couple of weeks ago taking a look at Paul in Athens, I was concerned that it might get a little too technical, especially because I knew that we were going to reach back into some Greek history and Greek culture. We're going to do the same this morning. We're going to continue to fill in some details that I hope will give you a richer, more rounded sense of Paul's education and Paul's background, and why it is that he says some of the things that he says. I've been very, very pleased with the feedback that I've been getting from people. They seem to be really enjoying this study. Hopefully, we can wrap it up this morning. And then you'll have to come back next week to find out what next week's. Topic will be. When we finished last week, we left at Paul beginning to explain to the Areopagites the God who laid behind their altar to an unknown God. And I read for you some of the history that was recounted about a poet and a philosopher by the name of Epimenides. Now we're going to hear from Epimenides yet again today because this is not the only place where Epimenides plays an important role in Paul explaining Christ to the Athenians. Paul when he looked at the altar to an unknown God began pointing out to them that Yahweh was not, in fact, some unknown foreign god, which is what his adversaries seem to be saying. You might recall that the charge that they laid against him was that he was an idle babbler, a seed picker, and that he was preaching strange deities. And so part of Paul's approach is to say Yahweh is not some strange unknown deity. In fact, you've known him for six centuries. You've been worshiping him for six centuries. You didn't know him by name, but you know him. Because as you recall, the history of the altar to the unknown God is that Epimenides came to Athens and explained that the reason that their plague was not lifted was because they had neglected to sacrifice to yet some god who would be powerful enough to take the plague away from them and yet be kind enough, gracious enough to overlook their ignorance if they would just admit that they didn't know him. They were counting on this unknown God to be so good to them that he would lift the plague despite their ignorance in not knowing him. So Paul used that as the starting place. That's the touchstone. That's his beginning point. He's able to start at that altar and say, You don't know this God, but you've been worshiping him for six centuries. That's the God I'm going to tell you about. Because he's the only God that has the particular history of lifting your plagues and demonstrating his actual existence. He's the only one who actually has shown you that he is alive. Now, of course, when you look at the beginning of the book of Romans, You see, Paul developed that theology and say that the creation itself, the way that the heavens are laid out, all speak loudly to the existence of God. The very fact that night becomes day, day becomes night, that seasons change, the very fact that The natural order of things continues in the way it does. All speaks of design and creation by a creator. Therefore, the very existence of all creation demonstrates that there is a creator God who is behind all of that. So Paul's argument is, you don't know his name, but you know him. Because he's not far from any of us. He starts in verse 24. By contrasting Yahweh. To the whole pantheon of gods that the Greeks had. All their various altars. All their various temples. Were all two very particular gods. And each of those gods and demigods. Had very particular assignments in the world. They were over some portion of the world the same way as the Egyptian gods, where there was a god of insects, and a god of crocodiles, and a god of the Nile, and a god of the desert, and a god of, there were all these various different gods that had all these various different roles, but Paul comes in and says, the real god, the creator god, is the god who made everything. Everything that exists, exists because he made it. He did not parcel it out to lesser gods who were then in control of it. He's in control of all of it. And that's where we start in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands. I've been trying to stress the last couple of weeks that Athens was just chock full of temples made by hands. And inside every one of those temples, there was a god of wood or stone or bronze or gold. There were these man-made idols in man-made temples And Paul just pulls the rug out from all of them and says, The real God, the creator God, who is in charge of heaven and earth because he made heaven and earth. He is Lord over everything and therefore he can't be contained by one of your temples that you make with your hands. He does not dwell in temples made with hands Nor is he served by human hands, because that's what they would do all day, every day, is serve the idols that were in the temples. Now, why did they have to serve them constantly? Why did they have to go in on a daily basis and serve the idols that were in those temples? Because the idols were not alive and could not do anything for themselves. They even had to be carried They had to have priests and oracles who would speak for them. They were made of stone, they couldn't hear anything. And so, in order for those gods to maintain their godness, human beings had to serve them in order to create the imaginary idea that these gods actually were alive or had some kind of actual power, some kind of actual ability. Again, Paul pulls out the rug from underneath all of that and says, the real God, Yahweh, the creator God, the Lord of heaven and earth, is not served by human hands because he's the God who has all the power. He has all the ability. He's the God who, when explaining himself, says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. He owns everything, and he is completely self-sufficient, unlike all of the Athenian gods. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and everything. Okay, so quick quiz name something you have that God didn't give you. Your sin. But name a a thing. What can you name? What? The clothes on your back, the hair on your head, the fact that you know your own name, your ability to get up and be healthy, your own ability to uh, communicate with other people, Uh, the car that you drive, the home that you live in, the very fact that you've had food to eat. Can you name anything in your life that God has not given you? That is Paul's argument. God, who is completely self-sufficient, who owns everything, then parcels out what he owns to his creation because he's the one who gives to all people life and breath and all things. So you can't really come up with anything that doesn't go back to God or even, as Steve said, your sin, your sin ultimately is the result of the plan of God to begin with. So everything that is right now is in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God. And that's really important to remember And moments like this in human history or at least in American history where you see the world progressively going crazier, the word progressive there was on purpose, where you see people doing things that you think America's just imploding. What is going on now? And by the way, all of it will calm down almost immediately come November. But everything is being amped up right now, and it looks like America's in trouble. But you know what? Same God sitting on the same throne, still the creator, still in charge, still sovereign, still knows absolutely everything that is happening, and everything that is happening is serving his ultimate purpose and driving us inexorably toward the end that he has already determined. These are just the means that he is bringing us through to get us to the end that he is determined. He is the God of everything. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't exist in man-made temples. It's not as though he needs anything and it is him who gives people life and breath and everything. So Paul started with creation and from there he went on to the Non-physical attributes of God that he can't be contained in a temple. And actually that would have been, as I keep stressing, a complete contradiction of everything he saw all around him in all the temples in Athens. You may recall that I told you two weeks ago that in Athens it was easier to find a God than to find a man. Athens was just chalk. Full of idols, and Paul sliced them all down in one fell swoop by saying that none of them were the real God by virtue of the fact that they did live in temples, that they were served by men's hands, and that they needed men to bring them stuff where the real God owns everything and gives men everything men have. Do you see the difference? Do you see the contradiction that Paul was creating? He's the all-sufficient, fully capable God who provides himself with everything he needs because everything is his. And so in verse 26, we read Paul saying, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. God decided who was going to live, when they were going to live, where they were going to live, what the boundaries would be of the habitation here on earth. He determined every nation of people, every tribe, tongue, kindred, he decided it, every race of people. He determined all of that and he made every nation From our father Adam. So we all have that common heritage, that common bloodline. So whether Jew or Gentile, God made them all. Verse 27 then tells us that he made everybody at their appointed time and the boundaries of their habitation so that they might seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. All Paul has to do is point at that altar to an unknown God and say, see, he's right here. He was never far from you. He was never far away. You've been worshiping him for six centuries. You just didn't know what to call him. So now I'm telling you who he is. And I think that kind of catches us up to where we left off last week. Verse 28, Paul says, For in him, in Yahweh, we live and move and exist. I think the King James says, and have our being. We live, we move, we exist because of him. In him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Now you could read past that one little verse and miss what Paul just did. Paul actually quoted two ancient Greek poets in that single sentence. And he demonstrated to the folks gathered around him, to the Greeks that were there with him, to the leaders of Athens' culture. He was demonstrating to them that he was so well educated in Greek culture that he was even able to quote their poets quote, their philosophers for them. Don't forget that when he was in the marketplace preaching Christ and preaching about the resurrection, that it was the Stoics and the Epicureans. It was the philosophers who first said, well, then you need to go to the Areopagus and they need to examine you. And yet he demonstrates that he knows the poets. He knows the philosophers. He's well-educated in Greek culture. The first part of verse 28 comes from a poem called Credica, and you all already know who the author of that poem is. Care to hazard a guess? Epimenides. Epimenides, the very same man who is responsible for the altar to the unknown God. Paul is demonstrating that he knows that history. He knows about Epimenides. He's able to quote from Epimenides. Now I'm going to read the four-line poem to you. And you're going to recognize more than one line from it. Because this is not the only place that Paul quotes from it. Which is even more interesting. Paul is very educated in Greek culture. Greek culture has overtaken the Middle East ever since the days of uh, Alexander the Great. Greek culture has overtaken the Middle East and everybody who was educated at all was educated in Greco-Roman culture including Paul. Now he's demonstrating that he has that education, that he's not just some foolish guy from Jerusalem, that he's just some Jew who doesn't know anything. He's not the fool that they were playing him for. He's actually well-educated in their own culture, Now, the poem I'm going to read is translated into the English, but the only source that we actually have for this poem is a 9th century Syriac commentary by a fellow named Ishadad of Merv. Ishadad of Merv wrote a commentary on the Acts of the Apostles that was discovered and edited and translated into Greek by Professor J. Rendell Harris, and then translated into English, this is what the poem Credica says. They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. Okay, now that last phrase, in you we live and move and have our being, is the direct quote that Paul quoted here to the Athenians. But if you were paying attention, you also knew the second line. Because when Paul was writing to Titus, he actually quotes the second line, which is, Cretans always liars. Here, turn to the book of Titus for just a moment. Very first chapter of Titus. We're going to start reading. Oh, let's start reading from verse 5. Paul has left Titus in Crete. In order to set in order the church gathering there. Verse 5 says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Okay, now he's quoting from a prophet that belongs to them. Here's the quote. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He just quoted from Cretica by Epimenides when writing to Titus. And even says it's one of their own philosophers that said this. Now you might recall from last week that I told you that when the oracle in Athens couldn't figure out who the unknown god was, she advised that the Athenian leaders would go find Epimenides in Crete because Epimenides himself is from Crete. Therefore, he would know when he says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, as one of their own prophets have said. Okay, so let's go back and think about this poem for just a moment. What lie was Epimenides saying that the Cretans were responsible for? Why would he say Cretans are always liars? Well, it's because the Cretans were starting to say that Zeus was actually mortal. That Zeus could die. Epimenides considered Zeus to be immortal. And so that line, Cretans, always liars, came to be known not just by Epimenides, but then it was picked up by a guy named Callimachus in his Hymn to Zeus. So this statement is really all about Zeus, the Greek god. This guy, this Callimachus, was making the same theological point as Epimenides. They were both arguing that Zeus is immortal, and therefore anybody who says he's mortal, they are lying, and the Cretans believe that Zeus was mortal, therefore Cretans are always liars, according to Epimenides. Paul, when he picked it up in Titus, says, verse 13 This testimony is true. Not only does he quote from Epimenides that Cretans are always liars, but then Paul says on his own, he decides to just throw in his own opinion on it and says, and this testimony is true. For this cause reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths or commandments of men who turn away from the truth. I find it really interesting that Paul not only quoted the phrase, Cretans are always liars, that they are lazy gluttons, that they are evil beasts, but that he tells Titus his own opinion, and that's true. Okay, I've just got to go there for a moment. Paul just said, since he is Jewish and Cretans are not, he just said of another race of people, they are lazy, they are gluttons, they are evil beasts. Paul could not get away with calling another race of people those names in today's environment. Paul is incredibly politically incorrect at this moment. He didn't say it. He just retweeted it. (laughs) He just liked it on Facebook. But that right there would be enough for the modern cancel culture to say, well, then we have to cancel Paul altogether, regardless of all the other good stuff and good theology that he has laid out. The very fact that he would agree that Cretans are lazy gluttons is enough reason to be done with Paul. Well, Paul agreed. Now, Paul understood what the original poem was about. Why do I say this? Because he quoted two of four lines. There's only four lines in the poem, and he quoted two of them. That means that he is intimately knowledgeable of this poem, and that also means that he understands that it was about Zeus. It's written about Zeus, the fourth line. The one that Paul actually says. He references this as one of your own poets have said. In him we live, we breathe, we move, we have our being. That was originally said about Zeus. Not about Yahweh. Paul gloms onto that line and says the creator God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. You have just misidentified that creator God as Zeus, the real God, Yahweh, the one I'm here describing to you, is the very God of whom that can be said. So he is pointing out that they've had the right idea, they've had the right conception. It is almost impossible to live in this world and not have at least some conception of God. At least some, even if you object to it, that means that you were knowledgeable of it, to object to it. You have to have at least some concept of a creator, even if you disagree with the idea of a creator. Paul picks up that knowledge base and says, let me tell you who that creator is. He's the very God who you've been worshipping for six centuries. You just didn't know him. The second citation in Acts 7.28, for we are also his children, is from Aratus, a Cilician poet, in his poem that is known as Phenomena. Spelled differently, spelled with Greek words, pronounced phenomena, and then it has just moved right into the English language. It's where we get words like phenomenal and phenomena. This Aratus, this Cilician poet, was born nearly 300 years before Paul, and the poem itself is actually a pantheistic astronomical poem. In other words, it's about the stars and it's about weather. And the original line is, in him we move and we live and we have our being. So Paul is actually quoting from two very well-known poems by two very well-known philosopher poets. He is demonstrating that he understands Greek culture. He's a well-educated man. And so his use of that material, of Greek philosophical, poetic material has prompted people to just argue about what Paul was doing. Why would he do that? Is he modeling how Christians ought to present the gospel in non-Christian or non-Jewish environments? Is that what he's doing? There's this word these days, I don't know if you know this word, it's called contextualization but it's not talking about the context of the words of the Bible. It means that you preach the gospel within the context of the society in which you're preaching it. If you're out in Portland where everybody is unchurched and therefore come to church wearing chains and t-shirts, then you ought to preach in chains and t-shirts because that's how you contextualize. So is that what Paul was doing? Was Paul contextualizing when he quoted from these Greek poets? I mean, really, honestly, can Paul legitimately pull this line out of its context, even though it's about Zeus, and then reapply it to prove that the God of the Bible is superior to all the other gods? Is it intellectually honest to misrepresent the original author's intent? Or were these lines just kind of proverbial wisdom? Were they just so well known by everybody that it would be like if a preacher took a line from a common well-known song or a common well-known movie and made reference to it in order to make a point? Is that what Paul was doing? Well, that's what commentarians, commenters for years have argued about, they have tried to explain what Paul is doing in a positive way so that they can give Paul extra credibility for the very fact that he does it. I don't don't agree with any of that. I don't think that Paul was riffing on Athenian culture. I don't think that that's what he was about. Because he is so well versed in Jewish culture, he was after all, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was a Pharisee before the law, he claimed that he was blameless, so he knew Jewish law very, very well, but he was also a freeborn Roman citizen, which meant that he could appeal all the way to Caesar, and bring Christianity all the way to households in Rome, and he was well versed in Greek culture. He was a Greek speaker who knew the Greek philosophy, who knew the Greek poems. He was well trained in every aspect of what God would require of him. That's what made him the perfect apostle to the Gentiles, is that he was well versed in being a Gentile. He could talk their talk with them. He could find common ground with them. Remember three weeks ago, two weeks ago, however many weeks ago it was that we began this study. Remember that I said to you one of Paul's greatest difficulties in Athens was that he didn't have any common ground with them culture wise or history wise. And yet Paul himself as an individual could demonstrate that he knew their culture inside and out because they were so involved in wisdom and culture and philosophy that he demonstrated that he understood wisdom and culture and philosophy. By the way, there's one other place, if you're keeping track, there's one other place that Paul also quotes from the Greek writers. It's actually in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. This is something that Paul does with some great frequency. I just don't think we pay adequate attention to it. Paul actually quoted from a comedy that was called Thais, T-H-A-I-S in English letters. It was written by a guy named Menander, and the quote is, "'Evil company corrupts good habits.'" You probably all know that and thought that it was just a Bible verse. But it was also Paul quoting from Greek culture. So Paul was borrowing these phrases from these Greek poets and philosophers and then bringing them into Christianity. What was he doing? He was confronting the culture with Christ. What he was not doing was conforming Christ to the culture. If you remember nothing else you've heard this morning, remember this because this is really important. Far too much of modern Christianity is attempting to conform Christ to make him more appealing to the culture. Way too much of modern Christianity is willing to saw off the rough edges of Christianity in order to make Christianity more palatable to the marketplace of human ideas. But what Paul was doing was confronting Athenian culture with the reality of Christ. That's why he was in the marketplace saying, this one is risen from the dead. This one is the only savior. This one is the son of the only God. This one is the one who is all powerful. And they hated him for it. And he could have made it much easier on himself by simply changing the story of Christ in order to conform it to the Athenians. He could have made Christ just one of their many gods. But he didn't do that. He pointed out the singularity, the uniqueness of Christ demonstrated by the fact that Christ rose up from the dead the very thing that caused him to be brought in front of the Areopagus and when he got in front of the Areopagus he did it again he just told facts he just told truths and then he demonstrated time and time again that their culture their own philosophers and poets had to be changed and brought into conformity with the real God and the real Christ. Again, what he did not do was conform Christ to their culture. You see what Paul was doing? So what does that mean to us? How are we supposed to confront our culture? Because our culture is kind of going off the rails in so many ways. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to conform Christ and make him more enjoyable, more palatable to the culture in the hopes that maybe the culture would be willing to allow that maybe Christ might be some benefit to them? Is that how we're supposed to approach the preaching of the gospel? Or are we supposed to do what Paul did? Paul walked into one of the most difficult environments on planet earth to preach Christ, the Jewish Messiah, to a Greek culture that is full of gods and temples. That's an almost impossible place to go in and preach the only real singular God and Christ. How are you going to do that? You do it the way he did it. He walked in and he spoke facts. Don't forget that before he came to Athens, he had just been driven out of two cities. Driven out by the Jews who were following him around and causing riots and disturbances in every city that he went to. And that's how he ended up in Athens. And you would be justified in thinking that maybe once he got to Athens he realized how difficult it was going to be and so maybe he would compromise the message a little bit. Paul didn't do that. Paul walked in and preached the exact same message based on the exact same facts, based on the exact same Christ who is sent by the exact same God, despite the fact that he knew that there were going to be people who were adamantly opposed to it. Today, there are people who are adamantly opposed to the Christ that we preach, but do we stop preaching him factually, truthfully in everything that he is?
0: No.
1: No. No. We go in and we preach him anyway based on what he says about himself. Not our opinion. Not the way that we dress him up to make him more contextual to the society. We walk in and preach him the way that he says he is. And then we expect the culture to conform to Christ. We don't conform Christ to the culture. Now, Paul is the very one who has told us about God's electing grace. He's the one that's told us about God's predestinary will. He's the one who has told us, as the whole Bible does, that God does whatever he's pleased to do. Therefore, Paul knew going in that not everybody was going to get it. He knew going in, based on his own experience and on the things that had been revealed in scripture, he knew that there was going to be adamant opposition and yet he went in and preached it anyway because it is the truth and the truth deserves a defense and he knew one thing for sure, he knew that God had his own sheep. He knew that Christ the good shepherd was calling his sheep. And he knew that even though the majority of people were going to hate it and reject it, he was nevertheless required to tell the truth because for a couple of people, the lights might go on, they might understand it, they might come to Christ, they might realize the everlasting salvation that is a result of faith in Christ. At the end of this chapter, we're going to read that there was only a handful of people who actually believed, but Paul was willing to go in and risk life and limb for those few people, even though he knew that the majority were going to object it. Far too much of what calls itself Christianity today is so busy trying to appeal to the majority that they have nothing to feed the sheep. They're too busy entertaining goats. But Paul understood, if you go in and tell the truth, Christ will draw out his own. And that's really what we're about. That's really what we're supposed to be doing is telling the truth and then Christ will draw out his own. He will bring his own to himself through the preaching of his word and the description of himself the way that he himself has described himself. That is what Paul was doing by quoting ancient Greek philosophers and poets. Paul was not appealing to the Athenian culture. He was attempting to draw some sheep Out of the culture. And that's what we're still doing today. We're still preaching into a God-hating, Christ-forsaking culture. And why do we keep doing it and doing it and doing it? Not because we're trying to appeal to the culture. The culture hates us. But we expect that. We're trying to draw some sheep out of the culture. verse 29. Being then the children of God, which Paul says your own poets, your own philosophers have already said that in God we live, we breathe, we move, we have our being. So then being the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. That's a brilliant statement, by the way. What Paul has just said is, we are the offspring of God, and we're not stone. Therefore, how can a God of stone have offspring that are human? Wouldn't we, if we were the offspring of a stone God, wouldn't we also have to be stone by virtue of the fact that our creator is stone? You get the logic? He says, but we, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. Why? Because we are the children of God. And we're not stone or gold or silver. We are not the image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, the real God, the creator God, the God who made everything in whom we live and breathe and have our being can't possibly be stone. So why are you going into these temples where there are these stone handcrafted gods and thinking that somehow they had any influence in the fact that you live and breathe and walk and are? We're not stone, so God can't be stone. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God understands in his long-suffering character. He understands that the Gentile nations didn't have the revelation that Israel had. They didn't get the law, they didn't have the prophets, and therefore there was a time when they were just ignorant of Yahweh. They'd been worshipping him for six centuries, but they didn't know him, they admitted they didn't know him. So Paul says, God has overlooked these times of ignorance, but those times of ignorance are over now. God is now declaring to all men, Jew and Gentile, everybody on the planet. God is declaring to all races, all nations, all types and kinds of people. He is declaring to all the families of the earth everywhere that they should repent. That they should change the way they are and turn to him. It's a remarkable mercy on God's part that he's willing to overlook human ignorance. And boy, aren't you glad he is. But once you come in contact with the truth, once you come in contact with the real God of the Bible, then you're responsible for what you've heard. You're responsible for the fact that you know it. America is responsible for the fact that God has been declared in this nation for more than Well, more than the 200 years it's been a nation, before that, you had plenty of, well, the founders who came over on the Mayflower, I don't want to go back into all this history, were mostly Congregationalists, and mostly, by the way, Calvinistic. Most of the pilgrims were Calvinistic. The first universities planted on American soil were planted by Calvinistic Christians. So, America has no excuse for not knowing. America has no excuse for not repenting. God was willing to overlook the time of ignorance, but now the truth has been revealed, and therefore all men everywhere have to repent. Now, it is the same Paul who has told us that faith and repentance are gifts from God. So does that create a conundrum? because it is God who gives you the ability to believe and repent and yet God demands that you do that that you repent God holds everybody responsible to repent even though he understands that people won't because people can't and that he has to give them the ability to do it God demands of people things they can't do like keep my law for 1400 years and the first time he gave it to Israel he said to Moses now they're not going to do it they're not going to keep my law but I am going to command them to keep my law and when they break it I'm going to curse them same thing here God tells everybody everywhere turn from your own way turn from your own ego turn from your own pride turn to me even though he knows humans can't They're still responsible. He's still going to hold them guilty. Theologically, God demands things that men simply cannot do. But they're still legitimate commands, nevertheless, because they come from a sovereign God who has the right to command whatever he wants. Now, why should they repent right away? Why should they repent immediately? Well, that's verse 31. Which begins with the word, because... So Paul now is explaining why God said that men everywhere should repent. Why? Because he, Yahweh, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There it is, the resurrection again. We're right back at the resurrection. That is the central piece of all Pauline theology. The very fact that God has raised him from the dead is evidence, and not just evidence. Look at the wording Paul used. It is evidence. It is proof to everyone. The very fact that Christ was on the planet, that he died and that he raised again is enough to hold everybody responsible for their sin against the fact that God raised Christ from the dead. So everyone across the board, Jew or Gentile, everybody's guilty. But we saw that in Romans. The same idea. Everybody is guilty because God raised Christ from the dead. And that is proof to all men. And that man, the raised one, the resurrected one, is the man who is going to judge the whole world. But look at the word that Paul chose to use. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. So if he's judging everybody on the basis of righteousness, who can stand? Mm. Especially in a god-hating world, in a Christ-hating culture, who's going to be able to stand before that judgment? He is going to judge the world Everybody, Jew and Gentile, the whole world. He's going to judge the world in righteousness through the man, through Christ Jesus, whom God has already appointed to be the judge, which is why Jesus could walk around saying that he was going to sit on his throne and judge. And he's already furnished proof that that's what his plan is because he's already raised that man from the dead. And on top of that, God has already fixed the day when he's going to do that. In other words, God already knows what day the judgment starts. He already knows in the future when this is all going to wrap up. I began this morning by saying that even the craziness of this world is under the hands of a sovereign God who is driving the world inexorably toward the destination that he has already determined for it. He knows what day Christ is coming back. He knows what day the judgment is set up. He knows what day the new Jerusalem is coming. He knows that and he has fixed it. Which means it's inevitable. That's right. It's coming. There's no avoiding it. And on that day, Jesus Christ in righteousness is going to judge every single man. Therefore, repent. Turn now. Because you don't know if that day is today. You don't know if that day is tomorrow. You don't know, therefore, everybody on the planet should repent because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection is the proof and the evidence that everything else said in this Bible is true. Verse 32 Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer and others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Some said, you know, that whole judgment thing and Christ resurrected and the real God, I need to hear more. Uh, Tell me more. Uh, That obviously can't be the whole deal. We're going to need more because we're wise. We don't have time to commit right now. We've got to think about this for a while. We'll hear you again. Meanwhile, others were sneering at it. Well, then, is it any surprise that we walk out into the culture of America in this day and talk about Christ and people sneer at us? People hate what we're saying. So do we stop saying it? No, Paul knew they were going to hate it. He knew they were going to sneer. And he stood right there in the midst of the Areopagus and he told the truth and he based it on facts and he said it at risk of life and limb because he was determined to tell the truth about Christ regardless of the consequences. And what were those consequences? Verse 33 Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, one of the leaders in Athens. In other words, nobody's too powerful on this planet. Nobody's too authoritative. Nobody's too advanced on this planet to be broken by Christ. When Christ wants you, He's going to get you because he's the sovereign and you're just a human being. And even if all the other wormy little detestable human beings on the planet all get together as a group and vote that you're really something, Christ can still break you and boy, he better. One of the Areopagites was converted. That's why Paul did it. That's why Paul went into one of the most difficult places it's just like Jesus saying, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Why did he must go through? Because it was one woman. It was one woman by a well that he had to have a conversation with. There was one person that needed to be converted. Jesus went for that one person, even in the midst of a hostile environment. Paul went to Athens to go get this Areopagite despite the fact that there was nothing but conflict, sneering, dislike, and he knew that the previous cities where he had said all this, they had driven him out and stoned him and beat him for it. And yet he did it again and again and again, and it's astounding and it's amazing, but he kept doing it because the cause of Christ is worth it, and the truth of Christ deserves a defense. Some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. I can only assume that the reason that Luke listed her is because she must have been a prominent woman there in Athens and others with them, who aren't named, just general others, but the Areopagite and the woman of note were also saved. So, it's been three Sundays now. What have we learned? I mean, yes, even the Areopagite was converted. One man named by name, and we're still talking about him all these years later. And it is. It's just like the woman at the well. It's just like the Ethiopian eunuch. It's just like Lydia, the seller of purple. God goes to lengths to go and get his people. Each and every one of his chosen elect people, he's going to get the gospel to them in some way and he's going to convert them and he's going to draw them to himself because God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself and glorifying his son by giving his son a people. Therefore, preachers of Christ go into difficult environments and go into Societies and cultures that just don't want to hear it and they just keep telling it and telling it and telling it, knowing all the while that God has his sheep and he's going to draw them out and that it's worth it because the truth deserves its defense. Preaching the love and acceptance of Christ is is a wonderful and a glorious message that that we're called to preach to those who are already converted, to those who love God, who love Christ. It's the most glorious message that you can possibly preach to them, that God loves you, always has, is long-suffering, and has paid for your sin debt. It's one of the most astounding things that a believer can hear. But to unbelievers, notice that Paul didn't preach the love of Christ. To unbelievers there in Athens, notice the highlight of his message. It was judgment. It was judgment is coming. God has already fixed the day, and He's fixed the one who's going to judge in righteousness. Therefore, you better repent. Because to unbelievers, the message of impending judgment is sometimes appropriate. Sometimes, when you're telling the truth, you just have to tell the truth that God is righteous and God is holy and God is sinless, and God doesn't change, and God is a judge. And that's an important facet of who God is that all too often is glossed over in favor of making God more favorable to the culture. But the truth of God, the truth of Christ, needs to be preached every time, and sometimes God will draw his own out of the culture We're not trying to save the culture. We're not trying to fix the culture. We're trying to bring people out of the culture and bring them into the culture of Jesus Christ so that they come away with the worldview that is biblical, that is Christian. And once you view the world through a biblical lens, suddenly this very crazy world makes sense. Suddenly this completely arbitrary culture makes sense, so we are calling people to a biblical worldview, we are calling people to understand what the Bible says, who Christ is, who the real God is, and warning them that he's a judge, and then when they come to Christ, we tell them all about the love of God, because it's amazing. But get that right, I, I just, I'm going to say this one last thing. Well, it's not quite 12 o'clock, so I've got a minute and a half left. Far too often the Christian church these days is going into a God-hating culture and saying, Jesus loves you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You'll notice Paul didn't do that. Paul did not walk into the Athenian culture and say, hey, God loves you. He walked into a God-hating culture that was completely confused by all their idols and all their temples and all their worship, all these foreign gods. He walked into that environment and he said, there is a God. He's the real God. He's the creator God. He's the God who made everything and he's going to judge you. It's time for you to repent. And Sometimes that's a really necessary message. Got it? Got it. Yeah. Then when people come to faith in Christ, yes, I can't wait to tell you about the everlasting love of God who chose you before the foundation of the world. What a wonderful message. But you can't say that to anybody arbitrarily everywhere. What you can say to everybody on the planet is, God's a judge. Christ is real. Repent. Got it? Got it. Okay. Questions? Questions? Did you mind all that extra Greek culture that you learned the last three weeks?
0: Oh, was
1: good. If there are no questions, then. I said a few moments ago that God draws out his own. We know that he has his own. We know that he's in the business of drawing out his own, and he's not going to lose a single one of them. So, Danielle, if you would... Everybody else grab a hymnal and turn to 445, and we are going to sing, No, Not One.